Yes, well, now I would like to talk about what I think is necessary. We've talked about the problems of the evangelical church. And I mentioned at the end of the last lecture the one, thing, one of the things that I do think is a real problem, and that is the fact that we have, in the evangelical church, uh, confused the middle-class norm and the biblical absolutes for so long that I'm afraid that with the rise of any establishment elite that the evangelicals would not say anything, uh, not rock the boat, as long as their uh, their own lifestyle was not threatened. And I choose the word lifestyle here, the word lifestyle rather than doctrines. I think this is really where the, the thing rests. As long as their, our own lifestyle would not be threatened, I'd be afraid that we just we wouldn't raise our voice. Now, I, I think we can say for what is needed for the, um, to speak into an age like ours, going all the way back from the first lecture onward of analyzing where it has come from on the philosophic side, on the scientific side. Uh, I think that we can sum up what is needed for a generation like ours in saying, speaking of two contents and two realities. Two contents and two realities. And I feel that if we're really going to face the generation that is before us, and if we are going to effectively preach to such a generation of ours, that uh, these, both of these contents and both of these realities must be present. Now, the first reality, the first content, pardon me, is a clear doctrinal content. There must be a clear doctrinal position. I'm talking the central things of Christianity. These must be really clearly held by the evangelical people, even those who, who have some differences among themselves, <coughs> that we might consider important. <coughs> Yet, nevertheless, the evangelical group is the evangelical group and the central things of the Christian faith must hold a, a really clear doctrinal position. In other words, there must be an orthodoxy of doctrine, an orthodoxy of doctrine. This carries certain things with it. It carries with it, of course, and I don't need to say that here, and yet I will add it for the sake of completeness, that there must be no mixture with liberal theology. We mustn't allow liberal theology, which is an entirely different system, as I gave in my critique of liberalism in the midst of the lectures. It's an entirely different system. We mustn't try. We mustn't have any mixture between the liberal doctrines and the historic Christian position. There just mustn't be any mixture. Then at the same time, I think we must be careful not to fall into what I call evangelical Kierkegaardianism. And that is evangelicals drifting without knowing it into the area of, of the thinking in a dichotomy. And I think one of the most subtle things in this, and one that can come very easily without people ever realizing that what is happening is the attitude of saying, don't ask questions, just believe. And we, we must recognize that this is a, this is a, a remnant of platonic thinking. It's a, something to do with some, some sort of platonic emphasis in evangelicalism. And we must acknowledge with some tears that there have been too, there's been too much of a platonic in evangelicalism. But certainly in an age like ours, we mustn't fall into the dichotomy. Because you see, as soon as you say this, as soon as you say, don't ask questions, just believe. In reality, as soon as you say this, don't ask questions, just believe. In reality, we are upset. We're separating the Christian faith from 
history, we're separating it from that which is open to uh, discussion. And if we're not careful, what we do is just make it into another kind of a trip. You can have an Eastern religious trip, or you can have this kind of a trip, but they're both trips. So you've got to be awfully careful. And especially in the, among the evangelicals who are highly emotionally uh, orientated, and have been, this is a very real danger of, of making people feel that it's unspiritual to ask the question. It's falling into some kind of an upstairs mysticism rather than the whole man being involved in the salvation. It is drifts almost always into minimizing the scriptures and putting the emphasis on something else, on experience, manifestation, on something other than something other than uh, scripture. But all these things do the same thing. It's minimizing a this in favor of this, and it's putting a dichotomy between them instead of, keep, instead of keeping them in the unity, as I showed at the Reformation, they kept them in the unity, and as such, as such, it's our own particular danger of an evangelical Kierkegaardianism. Another thing that we can do if that falls into an evangelical Kierkegaardianism is in any way minimizing the content of the message. Now, it doesn't, doesn't mean that we have to make our distinctive doctrines as those that are Presbyterian uh, equal with the, with the things in which all of our Christian brothers have in common. I'm not saying this. We aren't to spend our lifetime over smaller, smaller points in the midst of a world being afire, though we're to stress our distinctives at the proper places. But nevertheless, in general, the diminishing of content is as an evangelical form of Kierkegaardianism it is a tendency to move upstairs. Another thing which I think has practical repercussions is that is the evangelical leaders who praise Karl Barth. I would say World of Flame was a good book in many, many ways. I think it's the book, best book that Billy Graham has written in many, many ways. But one place where I, it really made me sick when I read it, and I mean that too, I don't mean just sick, but it, it upset me was the fact of where uh, several times he comes back and he praises Karl Barth. Without realizing that Karl Barth may be passe now, and so you can praise him safely in a way, which I think is what's often in these men's minds, but, but that he really is the Barth what really was the one who opened the door in the whole existential theology. So you, we just must not praise Karl Barth. Now, this doesn't say you mean you have to attribute everything, uh, a lot of things to him that he didn't say. You've got to be fair with the man. You've got to be honest with the man. But nevertheless, you have to say in the essence of his system, he was the one who opened the door. And then another form of evangelical Kierkegaardianism that is very much about us is the fact of certain of our theological seminaries and so forth and theological writers treating the first half of Genesis the way Karl Barth treats the whole Bible or the way the, the, the more specific, the neo-orthodox, or the, evangel the uh, existential theologian treats the whole of the Bible. In other words, there are certain evangelicals that would hold on to uh, the Bible and its historic uh, emphasis in the rest of the Bible, but in the first half of Genesis have given it up. And I really think the battle's right there. If we give up the historicity, the space-timeness of the first half of Genesis, it won't be long before the next generation gives up the space-timeness of more. So these are realms, all under the area of content, a clear doctrinal position, that I feel are crucial. Another place 
in the area of a clear doctrinal position that I think is crucial is in the practice. The practice of uh, of our attitudes in these areas. The practice of purity in the areas of doctrine. We have to practice truth. There's two ele- two elements here. There's the the teaching of the truth in the area of doctrine, but there's the practice of that truth. And it must be practiced where we can observe it. In other words, it must be practiced too where it's costly, is another way to say it. And we who are born again Christians, regardless of the stream of the church from which we've come from, we have a calling. It is to exhibit the holiness of God and the love of God simultaneously. And in my little thing, The Mark of the Christian, I've stressed stressing the love of God. But you must never forget that this is completely out of balance without an equal emphasis on the stressing of the holiness of God in the area of doctrine. So in reality, the, the, the two appendices of the church before the watching world, I put them there in balance. I wouldn't have put one without the other. The problem of apostasy on one side and the other side, the practice of the, practice of the mark of the Christian of love. So regardless of what stream of the church we come from, we have a call in Scripture uh, to a purity of di- doctrine and life, but we have a call also, uh, a call to love, but you must reverse it now. You have a call to love, but you have a call to the practice of the, the practice of purity in doctrine and life. And this is in two areas. It's individual and it's corporate. The individual person has it, but the church has it, whether it's the individual local congregation or the denomination. Now let's say, let's try to put this into a framework that we can feel the thrust of it as I feel it. And that is, here we live, and I've spent now well over a week emphasizing the fact that we live in a generation that does not believe the truth exists. We simply do not believe the truth exists. It's our generation. If our generation thinks it's unthinkable that truth exists. More than this, I've emphasized the fact that this is the mark of our generation, it's accepting for the dichotomy, the pessimism that they don't expect anybody to find a unified field of knowledge in which all of knowledge and all of life would be good. So everybody around us today by, by thought and by, uh, uh, by infiltration, by, on every side, they are the people who do not believe the truth exists. Now here we come along and we say, we say you do not believe truth exists, but we believe truth exists. And not only do we believe truth exists, but we believe that we can verbalize the truth to you. It's a truth that is able to be verbalized, to be put into words in the midst of the 20th century. And we insist this against the whole mentality of our age. We're standing in absolute, absolute antithesis to the spirit of our age. So they, are, they think truth is unthinkable. We come along, we say it's thinkable. It's not only thinkable, but it's able to be verbalized. Now when we say this, do we really believe, do we really believe that they will take us seriously if we say a thing like this and we don't practice truth? Don't you see that it's not only a matter of what is right, it's a matter with what is wise as well. Now, we should do a thing because it's right and not just because it's wise. But what I'm saying is in our generation, it's not only uh, overwhelmingly what is right, but it is overwhelmingly what is wise. That we cannot take a generation that is completely committed, as our generation is, completely committed to the concept that there is no such thing as truth, we cannot stride into their midst 
insist, insist that we believe truth exists and we can verbalize that truth for them and that it's a universal truth for all men. We cannot expect them to listen at all if we do not practice truth in the places of religious cooperation where it's costly. And this is, we, I think this is, it's not a que it's not only a question of rightness, so that's the basis upon which we should determine it, but, a, but we must see that it is also a very practical thing. That the young people, whether they're our own young people who go off to university and infiltrate with all this, or the young people that we're trying to talk to, if we do not practice the truth which we say we believe, they will not take it seriously that we really believe we have truth. They will think we're using truth in an upper story situation. That's exactly what they will think. In other words, we will lose our credibility, is another way to say it. We will not have credit, we will not have credibility in an age that does not believe truth exists if we do not practice that truth in the areas of religious cooperation. In the area of our churches, in the areas of our denominations. There must be an acted on antithesis in the central things of the doctrine. There must be an acted on antithesis. And when we, in our denominations, in our local churches, in our religious cooperation, we practice a latitudinarianism. As certainly as you live, we are going to be discredited by the people who would shrug their shoulders and say, of course, after all, you see, they really don't take it seriously. I didn't think they did because nobody does. So what we have, we have another factor, of course, and that is if we give a doctrinal latitudinarianism, uh, pardon me, if we give, have a doctrinal latitudinarianism, we are away completely from uh, the biblical teaching. But we must realize that there's going to be a constant tendency if we practice a latitudinarianism of pra of in, a, in the area of religious practice, there will be a tendency for the next generation always to take it into a doctrinal latitudinarianism. It's what's happening in evangelical circles in America today. There has been a, a lack of a lack of antithesis ecclesiastically, and this has led to a lack of, of antithesis in co religious cooperation. And then they are surprised that the next generation comes up with a doctrinal attitudinarianism at some such thing as the first half of Genesis. Why should we be surprised? So in the light of the tremendous, tremendous force that is upon us, the first point, if we're going to really have an impact on this age, is lovingly and gently, fair enough, and it must be this way or we fail too, but lovingly and gently we must hold a clear content of doctrine and we must at the same time practice that. And I do not think that practice of it can can be made a small thing. And of course in our generation there's every side there are people who are who are, who really don't understand this. People with very good will. And especially often under the, such a such a name as something we all should be interested in evangelism. Under the name of evangelism we're apt we're asked to cooperate with those wherein there would be a complete breaking down of the practice of truth. And as I say, my I'm not speaking on the high level today of what is right, though that's my central interest, I'm simply speaking that even if it wasn't a question of what is biblical, it is a question of credibility with our generation that does not believe the truth exists. I think it's one long step down the road as men get caught in this. So that's the first content. The second content is giving honest answers to honest questions. We must understand there is no dichotomy, there is no dichotomy between the religious and the spiritual and the intellectual. 
We must allow nobody to build up a concept of a dichotomy between these. They go together. They're a unit. They're a unit. But Christianity is not just low, and not just upper story. It is lower story too. And Christianity, Christianity is a unity, wherein there's no dichotomy between the spiritual and the intellectual. And after we're born again, the whole man belongs to Christ. And that includes the intellect as well as what is more usually thought of as, in quotation marks, as a spiritual. There must be no dichotomy, no separation between the intellectual or the culture, cultural, and the spiritual. They're, they're a unity. If we have truth, we should be able to answer questions. If we have truth, we should be able to answer questions. And when you examine the ministry of Paul and you examine the ministry of Christ, they answered questions. Never forget, Paul spent his lifetime answering questions. He was in the marketplace. He was in the synagogue. He was on Mars Hill. In his his letters, he answered questions. Paul was a man who was a, a, an answer, a, a man who gave answers to questions, but so did Christ. If you read the Gospels with this in mind, how much of his ministry, how many of the, how many of the parables that he taught, how much of his teaching came as a direct response of some question he was asked, and he answered the question. He answered the question. You can think of Paul. There's just three places that I find in the New Testament where Paul spoke to the men who were the, who were Gentiles, men without the Bible, without any Jews being present. And I think it's very instructive that you take these three places. The first was when he was preaching in Lystra, in the book of Acts. The second, when he was on Mar Hill, Mars Hill in the book of Acts. And both of these were interrupted. The Lystra one was interrupted more quickly than the one on Mars Hill. He gets a little further in the one on Mars Hill. But the place where he's not interrupted happily is the first portions of the book of Romans. There he is not interrupted. And if you examine them, he starts the same way in each place. The only thing, the only two were the other two interrupted, but he begins the same way in all three places. And he was answering questions of the Greek and the Roman world because he believed there was such a thing as truth. People often say, but didn't Jesus say you have to become as a little child to be saved? But they don't understand it. This does not mean that you that you don't ask questions. If anybody's ever had anything to do with raising a child, the children ask more questions than anybody. My own children were the ones who asked me harder questions than any university student ever asked me as they were growing up. A little child asks questions. It simply means that when we are faced with that which is good and sufficient, that we do we do as a little child accept it. It does not mean that we are to be upper story people. So I think along with the content of a good and clear doctrinal position and the practice of truth, there must be also the content, if we're going to reach a generation like ours, there must be also the content of being willing to answer questions. We are not dealing with uh, transcendental thought. Transcendental thought is an upper story phenomenon. Transcendental thought starts with a vapid mind, or a vacant mind, to be kind. It starts with a vacant mind. Christianity's meditation and Christianity's worship does not begin with a vacant mind. It begins with the truth of the scripture. It's a very different thing. Meditation means fastening your minds upon the truths of the scripture and in prayer, seeking a true true fellowship with God. But that's a very, very different thing from transcendental thought. So we we must be careful not 
simply to make our words sound like, and our spiritual words in quotation marks, sound like transcendental thought by removing it from the giving of honest answers to honest questions. It takes compassion to learn how to answer the questions of our generation. And it takes some keeping up. It is not possible to go to theological seminary, even a good theological seminary, for three years and get all the answers to all the questions you're going to need uh, for the next 60 years of your ministry if Jesus doesn't come back first. That's not possible. Things change. Things change. The questions change. I'm intensely amazed at the way questions change every three or four or five years in a place like La Brie. You have certain kinds of questions. Five years later, you have other kind of questions. The answers are the unchangeable answers of the gospel. But you've got to learn to relate these unchangeable answers of the gospel to a changing set of questions. So the questions we're getting in Lawbury today are titanically different than what we got five years ago. I'll be very interested to go to Yale and see what kind of questions you get there. But, from, but all of us who work in the university circles, whatever universities we go to, we all agree that the questions have shifted. Now, it takes compassion to learn how to give answers to questions. It, it requires no compassion at all to give canned answers. You can give that without it only being half awake. So it's like pushing a button. So you, somebody gives you, somebody asks a question and you just simply give a canned answer. But this is not compassion. And the real problem is do we have compassion enough to do the hard work to give the answers to the questions? Believe me, it is hard work. It is hard work. It means reading when you're on the airplanes. It means reading when you're on the train. My family often complained I read all during our vacation. Well, maybe I read too much for certain, at certain points on those, in the vacation. But on the other hand, neither could I have given the answers to the questions I've given if I hadn't worked consistently. We're not to sit under a tree and merely enjoy the cool breezes. We're really in a battle, and people are lost. And how seriously do we take their loss? And if we really take that they're serious, if we seriously take their loss, it requires hard work of a lifetime to give honest, honest answers to honest questions. And I just say in parenthesis, it is not true. It is not true that every intellectual question is a blind for a moral question. It is not true. People have honest intellectual questions. One thing that has always surprised me is that often in my lectures, when I'm someplace uh, in, in a university setting that wouldn't be considered evangelistic at all, but people are saved during the messages, and then you wonder why, and then gradually it dawned on me why. It's because they had honest intellectual questions, and when the honest intellectual questions were answered and out of the way, they, they believed. So there is such a thing as honest intellectual questions, and we must work in these areas. We must understand that the Bible puts its emphasis upon the test we are to have of prophets and spirits and fellowship. The test is in the area. The test is in the area of con of content and of answered questions. You can think of First John four one and two. But beloved, believe not every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Is this a, a spiritual upper story? Test, or is it in the area of the mind? The test is in the area of the mind. So if the spirit knocks on your door tonight, out of the occult, 
or if a prophet knocks on your door tonight, or if there's a test of fellowship tonight, the thing is not a spiritual test. You don't stand there with your eyes closed in the dark waiting to see how much spiritual feeling you get. <coughs> what you ask the spirit and you ask the prophet and you ask the man who is involved, what you're uh, for asking you for content, what you do with all these things is to ask them a, a question that bears with the mind and content, namely the fact, has Christ come in the flesh? And this is a very nice question because it has two halves. It means the one half is that he existed before he came in the flesh and then he came in the flesh. It's a very, very sharp question. But this is the only way to test the spirit. We live in a day of the occult. The occult is growing. As the Christian truth diminishes in the world, in the land, the occult will grow and expand. It sure as can be. I have an illustration of, uh, an illustration and that is if you are a, if you have a, uh, a campfire and you sleep at night and the, uh, you wake up about four o'clock in the morning and the fire has died down and you see the little eyes round about you and then you get up and you quick throw wood on the fire and the eyes are gone. Well, the gospel is like this. It not only is, it only, it not only has results where it leads men to individual salvation, but in the total culture it should have a result and it has a result in the, in the, in the unseen world. It keeps the spirits back, the bad spirits, the evil spirits back. And when the fire of the gospel dies down, the spirits are going to move in close, and they are moving in close. Now, in a day like this, what is your test? Well, your test is a doctrinal test. It's not the amount of kick you get, spiritual kick you get, from the thing you're doing. There's no doubt about it that much of the occult can give you a tremendous, and I'm spiritual in quotation marks again, but a, a tremendous spiritual bang. But that doesn't mean it's right. It doesn't mean it's right. The test of the spirit or the test for Christian fellowship is not on the basis of the strength of experience or the strength of emotion or on special manifestations. All of these can be counterfeited. The test is without, as at a single point and it's the area of content where the mind operates. Now, I'm not saying that Christianity only is the mind. It's the whole man. Of course, it's the whole man. But the mind is there, too. The mind is there, too. So, consequently, as we come to this whole question of content, it becomes very important. I've given two contents. A clear doctrine and the practice of truth and honest answers to honest questions. Now, the two realities. The first reality is the as a, a real a, some reality of spirituality. You can be a doctrine machine without any spiritual reality. This is the other side of the coin. It's perfectly possible uh, to be almost programmed like a computer, so that somebody you go up before your presbytery uh, and somebody pushes a button and out comes a string, and then somebody pushes another button and out comes a string. You can pass all the examinations and you're just a doctrine machine. But really, it's always has been so, but especially in a day of, of fight to the death, as I think it is, in a generation like ours, there must be a reality of spirituality. Will it ever be perfect? No, there is no such thing as, there is no such thing as a perfection of spirituality in this life before Jesus comes. But you don't have to fall either under claiming a perfection of spirituality or saying that spirituality is not important. There's something between these two positions. Hence, in our books, we have tried to balance this. In the, the work at Labrie, Labrie has many weaknesses. 
Some of them we see, and I suppose some we don't see. But the ones we see, we try to remedy. But one thing that's been there, by the grace of God, and for which we're thankful, has been some spiritual reality. People who come there feel something. There is something, and sense something, and can see something, and can analyze something. There's something real going on there. And in our books, we have tried the same. So I've written my books, and then it was very imperative that Edith Book Labrie be published. It was imperative that my last two chapters, my last chapter of Death in the City be published, uh, of the fact of the two chairs, the supernatural chair and the natural chair. It was absolutely imperative at a certain point in the books, the Labrie books coming out, the true spirituality be published. The whole thing of the book publishing thing out of Labrie by Edith and myself would be nothing, I would say, if it didn't include something like true spirituality as well as he is there and he's not sighted. The two things must go hand in hand. And this was very real to me. Back in 1951, 1952, I had been a missionary for five years in Europe and a pastor for ten years in America before that. And we had seen many good things happen. But as time went on, increasingly, I realized that the people with whom I'm working, I, with, with whom I was working largely, I could see no spiritual reality, so practically none, and it overwhelmed me. And then I asked the question to myself, but are you, do you have as much spiritual reality now as you did after your conversion? And I had to acknowledge I didn't. And I took about a, a month, two months, and I just walked out in the mountains, and I told Edith, you better pray because really I'm going back and I want to find out to the core what's wrong here. So I went all the way back to my agnosticism. And I asked the same questions I asked as agnostic to see if I had made a mistake in becoming a Christian. And I concluded I had not become a mistake, more certainly than ever. Then came the question, why then so little reality among these that are so orthodox and so given to fighting for purity? And gradually I saw that saw a tremendous weakness, a tremendous weakness, a thing that had never been emphasized to me. And that is the meaning of the work of Christ in our present lives. Christ works work the work of uh, his the meaning of Christ's work and the blood of Christ does not stop with justification. And the whole of true spirituality, the series of sermons that came out of that and then became the book. But I would just say very firmly, I do not believe I do not believe that Labrie would have been possible if it hadn't been for something of the spiritual reality, first in my own life and then in Labrie. I don't think it'd been possible. That's why when I wrote True Spirituality, I put in the introduction or preface or whatever it was called, that in some ways this book should have been printed first. In some ways it's true. It should have been printed first. Because the intellectual thing God has used, he has used this. But he's had, but there has to be a spiritual reality as well as, there has to be a spiritual reality uh, as well as these other things. So along with the content of a clear doctrine, and that's true about doctrine, you can have a clarity of doctrine, as I can as I said, you can be a doctrine reproducing machine. But along with a clear doctrine and the practice of truth, there must and the honest answering of honest questions, there must be some area of spiritual reality. And now the fourth uh, fourth point, the second reality, and I think this is crucial. Without this. Without this, the thing is not complete to preach into an age like ours. And again, I would say I doubt if it's ever been complete, but I, I only know about my own age. And that is the beauty of human relationships. The beauty of human relationships. Now, this comes in a couple steps. There should be a beauty of human relationship, especially among all true Christians. 
But the beauty of human relationships should be consciously pursued and looking to God for help pursued, not only with Christians, but with non-Christians. We must remember that the parable of the Good Samaritan, the story of the Good Samaritan, that the neighbor, the, the one I am to love as myself, is my neighbor, not just the Christian. And my neighbor, Jesus makes very plain, is all men. All men. Every man is my neighbor. This is the point of the Good Samaritan story. So therefore, therefore, even when we're dealing with non-Christians, we must remember they're made in the image of God. And being made in the image of God, we must treat them we must treat them in a good human relationship in which they face and some beauty. And this can be done even in, in, even in doctrinal discussions in which you differ with people violently. When I had my public discussion with Bishop Pike in Chicago a few years ago now, uh, the, uh, I asked the people at La Brie to pray for just one thing, and they stayed up all night and prayed because, of course, they were ahead of time being in Switzerland, and it was in the middle of the night, by the, in Swiss, Swiss time, by the time I was talking in Chicago. But what I asked them to pray for is that I might give a good, clear doctrinal position to Pike and to the people who were there, and at the same time, end in a good human relationship with Pike. And we prayed about this. And the Lord really, the Lord really, really heard. And there was a clear statement given that night. We had over 2,000 people there that night in Chicago, one of the worst nights of the year in Chicago. If any of you know what Chicago's worst nights are, you know, it was awful. But nevertheless, it was cold, bitterly cold, and we had 2,000 people there. And the Lord really gave me that night, I was amazed at the answers he gave me. I can put it like this. That it was clear. They were clear, and there was a clear position taken. But at the end, Jim Pike stood up and he said, I want you to know, he said, I want to say a word. He said, I want you to know that I have a reputation of not being very easy on the people I'm, I'm discussing with. I must say, that's putting it mildly. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty vicious. But he said, I have an, a, a, a reputation of being easy, but I want to say that this is the best public discussion I've ever had. And I just said, thanks, God. And out of that came times when he invited Edith and myself to visit him out in Santa Barbara, and we did visit him. And unhappily, he didn't accept Christ as his Savior, but we had a good, good relationship, and he listened to the gospel. I think he heard it probably more clearly than he'd ever heard it in his life. And the thing that gave me great sorrow is when he died in Israel was that he had promised that he would come into La Brie and stop and see us on the way home. And I've never recovered from this one. I feel overwhelmed. I feel Satan had a picture at this particular point. But what I'm saying now is, what I'm saying now is a very simple thing, and that is there must be good human relationships even when we're fighting for the gospel. And how easily we forget this. But then, of course, if we are to have good human relationships with a non-Christian, what do we imagine the relationships, the beauty of the human relationships that the Word clearly commands us to have with other Christians? Now, most of us here are Presbyterians, and we should put our emphasis upon our distinctives and not be ashamed of our distinctives and hold our distinctives clearly. But having said that, the command is not to have good human relationships and to love only the Presbyterians, but to love the people of God. And this becomes a very important exercise under the hand of the Holy Spirit. There is to be a reality, a reality of human relationships to non-Christians, but especially to those who are real born-again Christians. And this, of course, is why the mark of the Christian was written. It was just at this point. 
And these beauty of human relationships must be observable. They really must be observable. There's a certain country where where two groups of Christians had a very strong difference. It was not American, not America, uh, and uh, they, they never talked to each other. They wouldn't get together. And finally, because I was in the city, both groups got together because both groups would talk to me happily. And I was there, and it was a very important distinction they were making. Uh, but And then both groups stood up and said, of course I love these, these others. But for over a year, they refused to talk to each other. But this isn't the kind of love that cuts anything in speaking the gospel in a generation like ours. It has to be an observable love among true born-again Christians. A really observable love with a tremendous, tremendous, tremendous emphasis on the word observable. So this brings us to the second orthodoxy. My first point the first of content was an orthodoxy of doctrine. But there must be an orthodoxy of community. I keep repeating, I'm sure that it's always been this way in the church, that these things were needed. But, if, but certainly they're needed today. This I do know. So along with the orthodoxy of doctrine, there must be a second orthodoxy maintained, and I've chosen the term, the orthodoxy of community. Now, as we think of our local churches, we must ask a question, and that is, are our local churches, do they show an orthodoxy of community? And we mustn't make rapid, snap decisions. And yet, nevertheless, being in our individual Bible-believing churches, we do have to be honest and ask the question. And I would say the danger comes in the evangelical church becoming a preaching point and an activity generator, rather than a place of community. When the kids get into trouble, is it natural that they gravitate to their church for, the, for, their, for, the, for their need to be, to be fulfilled? And all too often, the answer, I'm not saying always by any means, but all too often the answer is no. No, there's no real sense of, no real deep sense of community. Now, how deep was the community, how deep was the community in the early church? And I think this is an important thing, an important thing, in why the gospel spread in one generation all the way from the, uh, from the Indus River to Spain. They had an orthodoxy of doctrine, but they also practiced a real orthodoxy of community. If you examine the book of Acts and the epistles, you find that the community which they practiced was to the high level of including caring for each other's material needs. And we have fallen into something here that is platonic, and that is people feel as though it's more spiritual to give to missions than to help a brother with his pair of shoes. Now, in reality, of course, I'm not speaking against giving to missions, naturally. But I am saying that it's not more spiritual to give to missions according to the New Testament than it is to supply a brother with a pair of shoes if he needs a pair of shoes. And read James. How clearly James speaks of it. James speaks of it with, with absolutely tremendous force. I love the church at Antioch. It's my favorite church. I love the church at Antioch because here you had the, the breaking down of all the barriers. As Christ's work should break it down. So first of all, you found this was the place where the Jewish Christians first spoke to the Gentiles. And then you find that not only that, but you have a, a, a spectrum. No slaves are mentioned here, but we can assume that slaves are mentioned because we know they're in other parts of the church. And it reaches all the way to Herod's foster brother who stood on the, on the top of the social, social pile. He was right up top there. And that nevertheless, being on top, the church encompassed them all. 
And not only this, but there was a man called Niger in the church who must have been black. And so consequently you have in this church of Antioch something that is profound. You have a real community across the spectrum of men in many different directions. Of course, the chance of that church at Antioch was also the church which had a compassion for sending out missionaries. They sent out Paul on his first missionary journey. But in themselves they are something. And when you examine, when you examine the early church, you find, you find that they had an interest in each other up to the caring of their material needs. Why were the deacons appointed? Why did de- the office of the deacon come into existence in the Christian church? Very simply, because people had material needs and the church was meeting them. And something very beautiful in this regard, and that is the factor that it was the Greek-speaking Jews who were being left out, Jewish Christians, who were being left out, and so they appointed deacons. And when you examine the list of deacons, every one of them has a Greek name. Isn't that beautiful? This is what I mean by a really practicing community. A really practicing community. It was, and the, uh, and it's clear from the early chapters of the Book of Acts that there was no no communism here. Anybody who says there's communism in the Book of Acts is deliberately distorting it or hasn't read it, because it may, Peter makes very plain they could do what they wanted with their money, but they loved each other so that they cared for each other's material needs. The beauty, the beauty of human relationships into the practical areas of life. This, of course, was not only true among the, in the local church with the deacons, uh, but when the poor Christian, when there was a famine in Jerusalem, Christians from far away sent money in order that they might have their material needs met. So consequently, we have a we have a very some very important thing here. We have the factor that if we are going to really preach the gospel in our generation, there must be a beauty of human relationships to the non-Christian. Even when I differ with him in the areas of doctrine, I must treat him as a human being. And especially among all true Christians and not just my own little camp of Christians, there must be such a beauty of human relationships that the world will stop and ask what? Ask what? Because we live in a very, very ugly age. But what you had was, the, the as I said this morning, uh, the, they tried to have community at Woodstock and by Altima it failed the present generation. Well, we ought to be able to show in our local church and in our situation that we have such a beautiful, uh, such a beauty of human relationship that here is a place where it has not failed. There's some, there's a base for it and therefore the beauty of human relationship is strong and clear. So therefore, in conclusion, I would say that there are two contents and two realities if we're going to preach the gospel in our generation. There must be a clear doctrinal position including the practice of truth. There must be the content of honest answers to honest questions. There must be some real spiritual reality in our personal relationship with the Lord and then the corporate relationship of the church with the Lord. And there must be a reality of beauty of human relationships and especially among those who are brothers in Christ. And I think if any place where we have these four things even poorly manifested, and it will always be poor compared with what it should be. It will never, never, never be what it should be. But even if we if we have some place where these things are poorly manifested, something will happen in our generation. And I think it's this way, under the hand of the Lord, that we must walk, looking to him for his help, if we're really going to be tellers of the gospel in the second half of the 20th century. Without this, 
I don't think we're going to really begin to move. Yeah. Shall we pray together? Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you will take these things and make them not to be just one more lecture and remove any place where I've made mistakes because we don't want to hurt each other, we want to help each other. But all those places where my analysis has been right and has been, my teaching has been true to the scriptures and the wonder and glory of yourself, we pray that those who have listened to these lectures here or do listen to them on tape may not be able to forget the Holy Spirit will bring them forth at the proper moment and thou wilt make us good tellers of the gospel in the midst of the second half of the 20th century that in the knowledge of the time we live in a difficult time and we might also realize that the early church lived in a difficult time and it is possible by your grace to speak the gospel in a generation like ours and when it's spoken, when these things are true of which we've spoken this afternoon, the gospel not only be spoken, but in many, many, many cases, and in most cases, by your grace, some will turn to you. So help us now. We pray your blessings until we're together again, whenever that might be. And I do pray your blessing upon this school. But it may not be just an academic situation, but it may have its own true community and beauty of human relationship. And you will use this school indeed to be a school of the prophets, in the midst of our generation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.